Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to Criminology Matters, the criminology podcast series in conjunction with LawPod. And today we are delighted to have Alessandra Corda from the School of Law. So you're here today to talk about your research on a particular aspect of what happens to people with a conviction, the collateral consequences of convictions. Can you tell us a bit about how you got to this area and what it entails broadly? So first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I first got interested uh, in this topic back in 2013. I just finished my uh, master's degree at NYU and I was working with Professor Jim Jacobs uh, uh, at his Center for Research on, on Crime and Justice. Uh, he was working on uh, uh, his book, The Eternal Criminal Record, uh, which uh, came out in 2015 for Harvard University Press. So I helped him polishing the final uh, uh, version of the book. I was also his teaching assistant in a seminar on criminal records policy and jurisprudence. And I got uh, really uh, interested in, in the topic. And it was surprising to me how under-researched the topic uh, uh, was. So here we are looking at uh, uh, collateral consequences of having a criminal record mm -hmm. and broad defined, we can talk about formal and informal collateral consequences okay. of having a criminal a criminal record. So, so what is the difference then between formal and informal consequences? Sure. So when we talk about formal collateral consequences, we are looking at all this legal uh, civil disabilities, uh, legal ramification stemming from having a criminal uh, record. Uh, so we are looking at uh, the loss of welfare benefits, uh, uh, disenfranchisement, uh, loss of other uh, rights. Uh, we are talking about the loss of public housing uh, and, 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 and various forms of disqualification from holding certain, certain positions. Uh, when we think of uh, informal collateral consequences of having a criminal record, we're mostly looking at uh, stigmatization and the enhanced stigmatization of having a criminal record, especially in today's digital age, uh, but also to um, all these uh, uh, background checks that are ongoing in, in our society uh, today, uh, not only for employment purposes, but uh, also when it comes to random searches, when it comes to uh, a date, a neighbor, an acquaintance. Uh, uh, so we are living in a society where criminal background checks, uh, uh, of course, with different nuances in different jurisdictions, have become really widespread and, and okay. basically they blew out of proportion. Okay. And um, so you have these material, I guess, outcomes, and which seems to be more of this punishment of poverty, taking away welfare, um, exclusions from public housing, and then this symbolic denunciation that keeps on giving. Um, in your paper, you talk a bit about the challenges these pose for reform. What are the challenges? What are the breadth of the challenges? 
So from a comparative perspective, we, we, we must say that, uh, uh, for example, in the U.S., all these legal collateral consequences are not formally a part of the sentence uh, imposed at the sentencing stage of the criminal uh, process. So uh, one adjudicated defendant uh, is sentenced to a term of imprisonment, uh, probation, uh, fine, uh, suspended sentence. But then regardless of the punishment imposed at sentencing, uh, you know that outside of uh, the criminal justice uh, system outside of the realm of the criminal justice, uh, many legal collateral consequences will soon uh, follow. So the problem here is about the impact uh, of the ramifications of having a criminal a criminal uh, conviction, having a criminal a criminal record. So from a law and policy perspective, as I write in in, in, in my paper, this is really uh, a question of proportionality. The problem here at center stage is proportionality. In the U.S., uh, the Supreme Court uh, really adopts a formalistic and differential approach when it comes to define what constitutes punishment. So when it comes to the Eighth Amendment, uh, uh, so uh, cruel and unusual punishment, uh, the Supreme Court is not willing up to this point to consider uh, as punishment uh, all measures that are not formally labeled uh, as such. So again, adopting a very differential approach when it comes to uh, the labeling game uh, played by uh, federal and state legislature. So mm, sex offender registries are not deemed as punishment. Uh, uh, other uh, measures like civil disabilities, disqualifications, uh, um, loss of voting rights, and so on and so forth, are not formally uh, viewed as punishment. So there's nothing really uh, putting a limit and limiting the ability of the sentencing uh, judge mm -hmm. to uh, impose a sentence. And then on top of that, uh, uh, the defendant, the adjudicated defendant, will also have to suffer from all these this, this consequences. On the other hand, in Europe, uh, historically, what in the US are known as collateral consequences are known as ancillary or additional penalties, and they are listed formally in uh, penal codes as uh, part of the uh, arsenal of, of criminal, uh, criminal, criminal sanctions. Uh, in the UK as well, we have this idea of ancillary orders uh, mm -hmm. uh, that are formally formally imposed at uh, the sentencing stage uh, on top of uh, uh, other more traditional forms of, of punishment, but at least they are taken into account. In England and Wales, uh, they are uh, formally considered uh, in the uh, sentencing guidelines process when it comes to the imposition of the sentence. So at some point, uh, if ancillary orders uh, apply, they must be taken into account by the sentencing judge when it comes to considering the overall proportionality of the tariff, of the punitive tariff being imposed on on a defendant. In the US, uh, this is really uh, out of sight. So uh, sentencing judges, they are not even aware of all these additional ramifications, civil penalties, collateral consequences that will hinder the life of uh, an adjudicated uh, defendant uh, after, after uh, the criminal process basically uh, ends. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you talk about proportionality. So what you're saying is that it doesn't even have to be an imprisonable offence for people to be impacted? 
Absolutely. So we, 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 we tend to uh, focus on, uh, and rightly so, imprisonment, the pains of, of imprisonment. But then when it comes to criminal records, it's not really about the uh, punishment imposed at sentencing, be it imprisonment, probation, fine, uh a suspended sentence. So even if a person uh, doesn't go to jail at all, then uh, he will still have to face uh, these ramifications of having a criminal record in the employment context, uh, in everyday life uh, context. So it's not really about when we talk about criminal history records, uh, the punishment, the nature, uh, the type of punishment imposed at sentencing, but rather having a criminal record on one's file when it comes to uh, background checks and when it comes even to uh, newspapers uh, and, and having the, the news out there, having this information out there. Yeah. It's not really about the punishment. It's really about being a convicted offender as such. Okay, okay. And so you and Sarah Lagerson have drilled down into some of the implications of these issues further. Could you tell us about some of the changes that you have noted as having occurred around this issue of criminal records disclosure? Absolutely. So first of all, uh, let me say that Sarah Lagerson recorded uh, one of the uh, episodes for this series. I think it's episode five. So let's go check it out. So we have this article forthcoming in the British Journal of, of Criminology, um, where we basically have a look at how things work on the ground when it comes to criminal records uh, disclosure. Uh, we have uh, case studies uh, from uh, the UK, uh, from Sweden, from the US, and then we also uh, take a look at how uh, Google uh, manages criminal history information uh, following the famous right to be forgotten judgment of 20, 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, here we, we, we highlight how uh, over time, and thanks to technological developments, uh, uh, a new private sector uh, basically developed, uh, and, 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 and basically these uh, private companies are profiting increasingly from uh, criminal history information uh, available out there. And up to this point, research has, has mostly focused on the U.S., where uh, in light of this First Amendment absolutism, uh, criminal history information uh, is, is, is normally considered as, as, as public available uh, information. There's no uh, restraint as long as it's something created as a result of uh, adjudication in, in the criminal process. Uh, here we are squarely uh, looking at public information and, and, and nothing can really prevent uh, the general public from accessing this, this type of information. Uh, I, can I just ask, because I find that astounding, the general public can access these criminal records information. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, absolutely. But what really uh, changed uh, with all this new uh, digital age is that until, I would say, uh, the 90s, as the uh, US Supreme Court said, uh, criminal history records used to exist in practical obscurity. So, yeah. of course, they were public information. They were publicly available. But if you had a conviction in Vermont and yeah. you lived in, in, in California, it was really hard for an employer in uh, California to really check whether or not you had a conviction in, in, in Vermont or Massachusetts or in another state. Uh, now, with technological developments, we have this, this uh, 
digital databases, and then we have private companies harvesting these uh, government databases. And, and, and large companies have assembled over time these huge databases collecting information from each and every state. So now, basically, it's very easy to access uh, uh, everyone's uh, criminal history in each and every jurisdiction in the country uh, by just paying a very, a very small fee. Uh, then you have uh, open record states where you don't even have to, to go to a private commercial vendor. Florida, for example, is known as the sunshine state, not only because of the weather, but also because they have this uh, uh, very open uh, approach to the dissemination of, of government information, including criminal history information. So they have this beautiful website uh, where you can just go pay by credit card and you can have all the criminal history information uh, you want. Uh, so uh, we have this huge problem with these commercial vendors in, in the US. Uh, and, and in this article, we highlight uh, the way uh, these uh, commercial vendors basically scrape and, and obtain this, this information. So we have this case in Colorado where uh, the company that was hired to help the government develop uh, a database uh, actually at the same time was duplicating this information to create its own database uh, uh, to be exploited afterwards for commercial purposes. Uh, but then we also take a comparative uh, look yeah. because we have this assumption that when it comes to a criminal uh, record scholarship that the US uh, it's really this evil uh, land yeah. and then Europe uh, it's really kind of this idyllic uh, yeah. uh, is this idyllic continent where criminal records information and criminal records are managed properly but in this article, we highlight that this is not really uh, the case, uh, at least uh, looking at the UK. And then we have this uh, case study on, on, on Sweden. Mm -hmm. uh, the UK uh, is really kind of a middle ground when it comes to penal policy uh, in so many regards. But uh, it, it, this is also true when it comes to uh, criminal, criminal records. Um, we have this demand for criminal history information. Uh, we have a, a rather complicated and layered system of criminal records disclosure. Uh, in, in the UK. Basically, we have uh, three uh, types of checks, uh, uh, basic checks, uh, standard checks, uh, and enhanced checks. Uh, um, we know that uh, under uh, the law in the UK, of course, we have different uh, regulations, but uh, they basically replicate the same rules in Northern Ireland, Scotland, and England and Wales. We have uh, convictions uh, up to four years for adults uh, that become spent after the passage of a certain buffering uh, period. Uh, Can I ask you, we have some NGOs in the UK who campaign to ban the box with regards to people having to take and disclose about having criminal um, convictions. What do you think about that, that so project to ban the box? At first, I, I, I really think high of this of this effort. So the idea is really if we cannot uh, uh, prevent uh, employers, for example, uh, at all from accessing criminal history information, yeah. then we can try to regulate uh, the moment in time when they can access criminal history information. So the idea of, of behind the band the box campaigns in the UK, in the US, is really to say, if you have a job applicant, you are not allowed to screen out that applicant simply based on uh, criminal history information. You can only 
ask and check about uh, prior convictions, uh, uh, criminal records on file with this person only later on in the hiring process. For example, when an offer has been made, uh, after you have had an in-person interview uh, with this job applicant. So the idea was that of not and is that of non discriminating against people with a criminal record. So, okay, this person on paper, if I look at his or her CV, has wonderful qualifications, yeah. but then I'm not really uh, willing to take the risk because I can see uh, without having had any uh, in person interaction with, with, with this, with this uh, uh, subject that um, there's a criminal record there. Uh, I, I really like the idea at first, but then recently, these are US studies, there's this. Um, Understanding that uh, uh, in these uh, risk-averse times, uh, employers, uh, they tend to uh, more or less explicitly, uh, more or less consciously to look for proxies for criminality. Okay. So eventually we have uh, people of color, for example, mm -hmm. who are uh, discriminated, ended up being discriminated. Um, I think that the band the box is 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 a absolutely great initiative, but we we should really try to reshape uh, uh, our uh, cultural approach to uh, criminal histories and people with uh, criminal past. What's the point of uh, uh, ruling out uh, a person f uh, having an old criminal uh, conviction? Mm -hmm. uh, we know that after uh, seven years, eight years, uh, one person. Uh, has basically the same uh, likelihood of committing a crime again of a person uh, who has never been convicted. Okay. Uh, so, but why, culturally speaking, we are still more willing to consider uh, and give a huge weight to this uh, factor from a distant past vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, other credentials. So uh, we have a person with a, a fantastic employment history, uh, with uh, fantastic degrees, uh, with great qualifications, mm -hmm. with great uh, letters of reference. Uh, uh, this person may have... Uh, uh, letters uh, really certifying his moral character, but then still we are willing to give more weight to an information that uh, has completely uh, lost its, its predictive value in a mm -hmm. sense. So I think that here we must have a cultural uh, conversation about how we assess uh, uh, and how we uh, give uh, weight to uh, criminal history information. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And I think it's really interesting to this commodification that has occurred of criminal records this uh this idea that everything is for sale and everything is for profit you know uh, absolutely absolutely so in this article with sarah lageson we developed this uh, new paradigm of, of penal entrepreneurialism as as we call it so we noticed that when it comes to uh the involvement of private actors in the criminal records industry, uh, we are observing a shift from what are traditionally the characteristics of uh, the first generation uh, uh, penal, of penal entrepreneurs. So uh, Malcolm Feely uh, of Berkeley uh, famously wrote this piece on punishment in society, published, I think, in the early 2000s, uh, where he really uh, described how uh, penal entrepreneurs uh, work and the role they have played in the um, 
development of penal policies and practices. Uh, then uh, Richard Jones uh, from Edinburgh uh, wrote another very influential piece on the digital rule as applied to, to uh, punishment uh, and, and control techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and basically we combine their two accounts to develop what we, we term the um, version 1.0 of penal entrepreneurialism. And then we look at the differences uh, that we, we really uh, see in the context of uh, criminal criminal uh, records disclosure and, and dissemination for uh, commercial purposes. And we uh, ended up really describing this new paradigm, what we, 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 we define as the paradigm 2.0 of, of, of penal entrepreneurialism. And did you say, so people can access um, these records for the, the purposes of dating or for the purposes of whatever they want, really? So this is true for sure in the US. Mm -hmm. This is not the case yet in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, but for example, this is what happened in Sweden as, as we, as we uh, uh, describe in, in our paper. So uh, we still have some barriers when it comes to uh, the criminal, um, the disclosure of criminal history information. But if we look back uh, in 2009, there was uh, this 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 uh, uh, policy announced in the UK uh, for which uh, courts should set up uh, websites uh, uh, and, 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 and publishing uh, a list of convicted individuals uh, uh, on their websites in order to alert communities. Uh, and this information would stay up for, for a month. Uh, so that eventually nice. didn't, didn't no go No prospect through. of vigilantism there or exactly, anything. Exactly. Yeah. But again, I think that it's really interesting to, to, to look at like all these policy mobilities and, and, and how we often tend to replicate and embrace bad policies instead of, of, of good policies from uh, other jurisdictions. Yeah. So uh, did uh, this didn't go through in the UK. But again, you never know because we have this information and, and you never know what might happen. It's interesting what happened in Sweden where uh, they have this, this uh, uh, public access uh, uh, information uh, laws, uh, access to, to government information dating back to 1766. Uh, and that was always in place. But then technology came along. And so private companies, uh, this uh, website, lexspace.se, uh, uh, realized that they uh, could access and collect all this uh, information uh, from criminal courts, which uh, have been, meanwhile, uh, digitized and assembled in, in, in these this databases. And then basically, they just released uh, uh, and published a website where you could just see, for example, if you had criminals living, convicted criminals, uh, convicted offenders, people with conviction uh, living in your neighborhood, you can run a background check. Uh, and so that completely commodified this criminal history information. So it was not only about uh, criminal background checks for employment purposes uh, mm -hmm. with the uh, check uh, being run by a public agency. Yeah. And that's the case in the UK, for example, today. So this uh, uh, freedom of information law uh, combined with technology, so we say that it was really an unplanned development. And that's the same thing that, by the way, happened in the US. It was really an unplanned development okay. uh, arising from the combination of freedom of information yeah. laws, uh, uh, 
First Amendment absolutism and uh, digital technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, this really opened the door to to all these uh, uh, private private players. Mm -hmm. So now we really uh, have to 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 deal uh, with this challenge. Uh, but there's no regulation uh, in place yet, at least at the European level. In the US, there's this huge debate uh, uh, about uh, privacy, criminal records management. But then again, you still have this golem, this totem. Uh, Presented by uh, First Amendment, uh, and it's not clear whether or not we can find kind of workaround regulations or um, balancing principles to to really introduce a new body of, of rules in order to limit at least uh, the abuse uh, when it comes to the role of private actors in disseminating criminal history information. Okay, so in a sense, this was unplanned. Do you think that criminal justice systems have the capacity to respond to what's happening with this data? I, I, I do think that there's this this, this capacity. Uh, of course, uh, uh, now, again, we are in the digital age, so uh, we are not only dealing with criminal history information uh, coming from official records. So uh, in the paper, we also discuss the role of, of Google yeah. uh, when it comes to the management of criminal, criminal history information. So, uh, for example, following uh, this, this uh, very important ruling of the European Court of Justice of 2014, um, holding that uh, information uh, that are inaccurate, inadequate, irrelevant or excessive uh, can basically be uh, eliminated from uh, search uh, on search engines. Yeah. So we're not talking about deleting any contents, but if you just type uh, your name on uh, the Google on, on, on the Google website, then a certain result is delisted. So it will not come out in the uh, results following your, your, your search on a, cert, on a certain engine, uh, uh, okay. search engine. Okay. Uh, so basically, uh, what we noticed when it comes to criminal history information is that uh, uh, Google, uh, which complied with the rulings, but then when it comes to criminal history information, we noticed then they added additional layers, uh, additional criteria uh, in order to delist information about someone's criminal past. So uh, they uh, unilaterally and arbitrarily uh, in their report, uh, in their guidelines, so their public guidelines, and then they also provide examples on how they deal with uh, expunge spent uh, criminal history information. Uh, even when a conviction in the UK, for example, is deemed spent, so a person uh, is rehabilitated uh, uh, on, on, on many uh, forms. Uh, uh, he or she can basically answer as if uh, he or she was never convicted. Yeah. But then when it comes to criminal history information reported by newspapers, uh, which are still out there because, for example, yeah. uh, a journal, a newspaper has been digitized, so the information is out there. And if you type your name, that uh, result can, can still come up. Uh, in Europe, in the UK, in other European countries, uh, some people, they ask Google to remove, to yeah. delist that information. Yeah. I've been 
deemed rehabilitated by my own legal system. So I don't see why a private company should second guess uh, official policies uh, in a sovereign state. But basically, unfortunately, this is what, what Google does. So they, as I said, they added additional uh, layers, additional criterion. So they say, okay, we are willing to delist as long as the conviction, even though this conviction is expunged or spent under national law, uh, occurred uh, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. If the person uh, uh, does not does no longer pose any threat to the public, if it's not in the public interest anymore, uh, they introduce consideration for public safety. So again, uh, we have a giant private player uh, second guessing. Uh, national law, national policy. So it's not even enough to be rehabilitated under national law if your conviction, if criminal history information about yourself can still resurface on the web and, and these giant players do not simply comply with policies that have been already agreed upon at the national level. And of course, these giant players go beyond the nation state. You know, they're transnational. And I guess that must have implications for the data too. I wonder, your piece is comparative and you write a bit about the EU directive on exchange of criminal records among EU member states. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that and maybe what you think might be the implications with regards to data post-Brexit? So uh, thank you very much if for this post question. post-Brexit comes, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, when it comes to the UK specifically, uh, we have to see what kind of Brexit uh, comes, if any. Uh, I think that with regard to uh, access, and I will say uh, something more in a minute, uh, about the exchange at the EU level of, of criminal history information, uh, a Brexit with a deal or a Brexit without a deal really makes a difference. So in our paper, um, we talk about these companies based in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, which basically exploit uh, this European framework as a backdoor to get information that you could not get uh, in the UK. So here we're talking about uh, basic checks, uh, uh, which would not reveal spent convictions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and usually until 2015, employers would basically get that uh, information uh, by resorting to what is known as uh, enforced subject access. So basically asking a job applicant, okay, uh, I cannot know uh, if you have any spent convictions, uh, because this job doesn't qualify for an enhanced or a standard check where, by the way, even unspent convictions and cautions would, would come up. But I want to know. I want to know. So why don't you go to the police and bring me uh, your police uh, criminal history report listing spent, unspent convictions, cautions and, 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 and anything else? Uh, in 2015, the government criminalized enforced subject access precisely because that was really a practice in contrast with the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act. Uh, but then these private companies, what they do, they have these uh, applicants signing a, 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 a form and then they uh, at least... Uh, uh, couple, uh, and even more, I would say, because they're really popping up. It's really hard to, to track them all. Uh, they, they go 
to Poland where enforced subject access is not criminalized and they can obtain uh, through the Polish system, which is online and has access to all these ACRIS uh, frameworks. So they can access uh, information about UK uh, criminal criminal uh, records and, and they release these this companies, they release a Polish certificate with, of course, uh, with a translation. But long story short, um, through this backdoor, and it's really a legal loophole, yeah. uh, which is exploited here so employers in the UK can obtain legally information that they could not otherwise have access to under UK law. So I think that here we have this kind of dark side of globalization okay. and, and sharing information. I think that this is another interesting uh, finding uh, from our uh, from our paper that even if you have like uh, uh, infrastructure that uh, at first sight would prevent uh, private players from exploiting uh, criminal history information for purposes that go beyond what's allowed on paper by the law. Then when you have, uh, again, this transnational dimension, uh, this sharing of information, you can have uh, uh, this this uh, uh, exploitation of, of, of loopholes to create a backdoor, again, yeah, to uh, disseminate uh, information that, again, otherwise could not be obtained uh, legally at home. Hmm. It sounds as if this is a hugely expansive issue that impacts a lot of people. What would your sort of take-home messages be with regards to ways forward to deal with it? So, again, we, we started talking about uh, formal legal collateral consequences, and then we ended up talking about informal collateral consequences arising from this massive uh, crave and, and dissemination of criminal history information. I think that here we have like a two-pronged answer. So when it comes to uh, formal legal collateral consequences not formally uh, labeled as, 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 as criminal uh, punishment, I think that, again, the idea of proportionality. We should... Uh, do anything that's possible to incorporate uh, these uh, formally non-criminal disabilities at the sentencing stage. Because even in jurisdictions like the UK or continental European jurisdictions where we are familiar with this notion of ancillary, ancillary penalties, mm -hmm which are part of the sentencing stage, then we still have sex offender registries, we still have uh, um, other formally administrative or civil measures that are not part of the punishment imposed. Mm -hmm. Then we have uh, rather active jurisprudence of the European Court of, of Human Rights, uh, piercing the veil and, and going beyond what are formal labels attached at the national level. But then this jurisprudence goes back and forth. So. Long story short, when it comes to formal collateral consequences, uh, whether or not they're labeled formally as criminal, we should uh, design a system uh, where criminal judges, sentencing judges, are aware when they decide what sentence to impose. They are aware, they're fully aware of all the consequences, criminal yeah, yeah. or not criminal, that will descend upon a certain adjudicated defendant as a result of this person being convicted. Okay. So uh, we are talking about uh, incorporating as much as possible. If, if not formally, yeah. uh, we should really make sentencing judges aware as much as possible of all these consequences so they can 
basically impose what is overall a proportionate sentence. So if you know that a specific uh, conviction for a specific crime will trigger X, Y, Z collateral consequences outside of what is formally known as the penal realm, yeah. then you might reduce what is the uh, formal, official criminal, criminal uh, punishment. So, uh, or... And it would be even better uh, if we basically cut all the non-formally uh, criminal uh, collateral consequences and all incorporate a few as formally uh, criminal punishments. That, of course, would make things uh, much easier. But again, my idea is really to incorporate as much as possible collateral consequences uh, into the sentencing stage. Yeah. So in the U.S., uh, the recent model penal code on sentencing uh, puts forward uh, precisely this idea of basically compiling and keeping up to date uh, a list of all the collateral consequences triggered by a conviction yeah. so that sentencing uh, judges uh, can really have the whole picture yeah. before them as they sentence an offender. When it comes to, to uh, informal collateral consequences and specifically criminal records management, uh, um, we really have to... Uh, basically uh, introduce clear rules about uh, what can be disseminated uh, and after uh, how much time we basically need to stop. Uh, this might be problematic because as someone uh, has recently uh, pointed out, in the digital age, there's no real expungement. So uh, probably we should take an even uh, more radical approach when it comes to when it comes to the management of criminal history information ideally uh, criminal history information should only be known to criminal justice agencies and actors. They are relevant for uh, imposing recidivist premiums. Mm -hmm. They are relevant uh, in, 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 uh, at the policing level. Uh, but again, to what extent we want the general public, which is not formally trained to assess, evaluate, uh, and, and make decision based on someone else's past uh, criminal, criminal history, uh, to what extent should the general public have access to this information? Uh, we have this brand new area, which my colleague Ben Levine at, at, at uh, University of Colorado Law School uh, termed the criminal employment law uh, of all this involvement of private players, uh, uh, which are not formally trained to make any determinations based on uh, someone else's criminal record, uh, actually making decisions based on someone else's criminal record. We want to stop all of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we should really experiment, first of all, by uh, cutting uh, down the uh, access uh, of uh, uh, private players yeah. to criminal information. Uh, it's really unfortunate that we have uh, uh, commercial uh, players profiting off uh, uh, someone else's uh, oh, criminal histories. Uh, the idea would really to uh, give back control to the criminal justice system yeah. when it comes to criminal history uh, information. And then there are 
various ways to to deal uh, with, with this problem and try to reduce uh, the extent to which criminal history information are disseminated. Uh, in Australia, for example, there's the idea of a sentence without a conviction. So uh, you are sentenced, you are adjudicated, but then... Uh, uh, judges have the discretion following certain guidelines yeah, yeah. to basically not record a conviction. Yeah. So that information cannot uh, uh, be released uh, in the first place because you don't have any recorded conviction yeah. on file. Uh, Interesting. Then, uh, again, we have uh, uh, the idea that once the sentence has been served, yeah, the conviction is vacated. This is yeah. something that was popular in the U.S. Uh, when rehabilitation was still the overarching goal of sentencing and, mm -hmm. uh, more generally speaking, of the criminal justice system as a whole. Uh, so there are a lot of, a lot of um, routes that we could take. And I think it's really interesting that primarily within that we have the judicial decision-making stage because for me um, it's it's a stage that doesn't receive enough focus and it's a stage that has huge outcomes as as you've just evidenced in your research. That's all we have time for today. So can I just say thank you very much thank for you very much coming for in, Alessandro. That was really interesting. Thanks thank for you. having me. 